0: The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners like you. Go to www.patreon.com slash HowIsThisMovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain our goal of keeping this show independent and free of advertising. Hello everyone and welcome to How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at How Is This HowIsThisMovie. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash HowIsThisMovie. You can always reach out to me with questions or comments at HITMPodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. A few weeks ago, I watched a short film on YouTube called The Long Arm of the Leprechaun. The 15-minute short begins as a fun romantic comedy... ...and quickly escalates into something unlike anything I have seen in a long time. And believe me when I say, that is a good thing. I became fascinated with the long arm of the leprechaun, and I had to learn more about it. On this episode, I was delighted to speak with Kelly Goodner, the writer and director of the short film. Kelly was an amazing guest. We had a great conversation and along with learning everything I wanted to know about her short film, I also discovered that Kelly has a passion for many of the same films and franchises that I do. You can tell just by listening that Kelly and I could have talked movies for hours, and believe me when I tell you that she will be a returning guest very soon. Now let's talk to Kelly. Kelly, welcome to How Is This Movie. I'm so thrilled that you could join me. Uh, I'm going to do something a little different right now. I'm going to make this the first interactive episode of How Is This Movie, and by that I mean anyone that's listening to this episode— I want you to go to the show notes of this episode. There you're going to find two YouTube links. The first link is going to be for the actual viral video, which was the inspiration for The Long Arm of the Leprechaun. And the second link is going to be the short film that we're talking about today, The Long Arm of the Leprechaun. So that way, the listeners, you can, you can absolutely understand everything we're talking about when we're going over the discussion of this short film. So Kelly, how are you today?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. So there's a lot I want to know about this short film. (laughs) There's a whole lot I want to know with. Let's start at the very beginning, because this viral video that the short film is based off of, it's a very popular one. It's one that I've seen. I mean, I think it's absolutely hilarious. So take me through the absolute beginning genesis of The Long Arm of the Leprechaun.
1: Actually, I mean, I think it came out the the original video, maybe in 2008. I mean, it's an old one, you know. So basically the reason I wrote it at all or wrote short films at all because I've always been kind of into writing features. You know, I never really thought about making short films so much. And I thought, or I heard that people were buying short scripts. And I thought, well, geez, I can write one of those way faster, <laughs> you know, than I can write a feature and maybe sell it quick. And so I wrote this one um, based on... This being something that just actually happened to me, uh, trying to, my anniversary, uh, with my boyfriend was on St. Patrick's day and and he thought this video was funny and I was going to buy him this shirt. Uh, and then it didn't come and I went through this whole customer service, you know, battle over it and which is so ridiculous because the video is ridiculous. Buying a shirt for the video is ridiculous. It just got funnier the longer it went on you know, how embedded I was becoming in this. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to write a quick comedy short script about this. And I wasn't even planning on making it. And uh, then my friend who's an actress said, well, can I play you in the movie? I, you know, said, oh yeah, sure. And so then I thought, well, I'm going to make it really quick with friends. And then the second you start planning or making decisions, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And as you can see, it got way, way bigger. And uh, and once James Hong came on, it just got like, okay. now I have to do, you know, James Hong justice and it has to get bigger and bigger. And uh, but that was really where it came from was just I'm going to write a short script. I'm going to sell it to someone who wants to make short script and um, or short films then that I was going to do it with friends. And then it kind of turned into this strange epic.
0: When did this start? When when did this whole process start?
1: It came together very quickly when I actually made it. I had only probably a month of pre-production on it. It was, I guess it was 2014, just after St. Patrick's Day. So we shot on Easter, in 2014. So but I spent two years
0: in post-production. Two years in post-production. Okay. Yeah.
1: I so, shot in four days and spent two years in post-production. Okay.
0: So let's, okay. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So first of all, I'm happy to hear that this is based on a true story. Yes. So th- that's that's outstanding. So you write the short script. Your friend says that she wants to play you. No problem there. Tell me about what happens before you start shooting. How do you get the other actors involved? I mean, do you reach out to casting directors? I mean, how does, how do you, how did you cast this short film?
1: I mean, honestly, I think when somebody sees the film, they, I think, I mean, and hopefully that's the reaction. The biggest part of the comedy to me is why did someone make this? (laughs) You know, why this? Why now? You know, why not, why such a roundabout, you know, angle into it? And that's kind of what's funny about it to me. And so, Really, honestly, had I had everything planned out to a T, I probably wouldn't have made it. It was that I did make just one decision at a time organically based on the last decision. You know, so it, it really wasn't planned in such a, okay, here's here's the usual process for making one of these, the professional process. I didn't end up going through that route, and honestly, had I... um. I probably wouldn't have made it or finished it because logic would tell you this is not the most, uh, safe project, you know, to be making. So, yeah, I went, I had my friend who, I mean, she's a trained actress, you know, she's not just a friend, But, uh, Mary O'Neill, she played me. And then, so I knew a couple of other actors too, like Steve Moulton, who plays the troll. He was in Sharknado. I mean, he's been in, you know, some things. And then I thought about, uh, cameos, you know, for different things. And I thought, well, you know, what about the landlord? Maybe that's an opportunity to get somebody, and the, seriously, the very first person I thought of was, "Do you think we could get James Hong?" And uh, because I love Big Trouble in Little China so much, and Revenge of the Nerds too, and Wayne's World too, and you know, a bunch of stuff. Obviously, Blade Runner and Chinatown. Uh, Jim Hemphill, the producer, said, "Well." you know, there's, it, there's no harm in trying. So I went on IMDB pro looked him up and found direct contact info for him. So it was kind of just a streamline. And the second he said he would do it, then it kind of got kicked up a notch. The leprechaun is actually the biggest challenge in terms of casting, because I really it wasn't actually written for a woman, or anything in particular. It wasn't written necessarily for a little person. It was I had no idea what the leprechaun was going to be. So that that was the biggest challenge was finding her.
0: Let me ask you this: when you go through, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about James Hong just for a second here. Uh uh-huh. You you got his information right off of IMDb Pro, direct right. contact information. Do you contact him directly? Does he have an agent? I mean, how does that process work? And is this a Uh, Is is he a SAG actor? Is this something that's done through the union or is this how do the rules apply for something like this with a short film?
1: Yeah, um, he is SAG. I mean, gosh, he's got so many credits and he's still I mean, he's in Kung Fu Panda 3 right now. That's out. And he's in Mike Tyson's Mysteries and he was on Elementary last week, I think. And, you know, so he's still he's big time SAG constantly working. I don't think he does now, but at least at the time when I contacted him, he didn't have an agent, which I actually think is the most amazing thing about James Hong. (laughs) So he's a really eccentric awesome guy. And the funny thing is, that made me think, so every time someone's casting James Hong, they just thought of him, you know, usually agents are pushing somebody, you know, this is our new person, put all your power behind him. And I've worked at agencies for a long time. So I know that that's how it works. But it means that if he doesn't have one, then every time someone cast James Hong, someone just said, Hey, what about James Hong, which is pretty awesome.
0: And that's incredible because I was looking over his IMDb credits. He's got something like uh, over 500 acting credits. Yeah. Like that's in, that's insane. And, and well, to think he has, doesn't have an agent, that's insane.
1: Right. I mean, you know, he has in the past and stuff. Sure. But I just, I think at a certain point, maybe you don't need them. And he has kind of cornered the market. Like in my uh, short, there's nothing Asian about the character. But I do think, you know, I just wanted James Hong. I just love James Hong. But I do think sometimes... Uh, and I, he definitely has some roles that have nothing to do with being Asian. But I do think when people think of an Asian older actor, it's like, well, James Hong. He's just kind of that go-to guy. So I guess he doesn't need one.
0: So you've, you've got the the principal cast in place. Let's let's talk about the casting of the Leprechaun for a moment. You mentioned <laughs> that 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 wasn't written as a little person, wasn't written as a as a female. So how did that come together?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wrote it and I thought. You know, I think you can really, you know, lock yourself down and just not be able to think very well. You can paralyze yourself if you start to get into too many production considerations when you're writing anything. Um, So I hadn't thought about it, and I thought, well, for all I knew, it was going to be an animated character, or it was, you know, something to imply that it was magical, but I didn't know what. I'm not any sort of, you know, big activist or anything, but I thought it was kind of maybe cheesy or cliched to go with a little person, or you know, insulting. I tend to think that leprechaun are kind of tacky and cheesy generally the way they're portrayed. Um, I like the word Davis Leprechauns, But, you know, so I didn't automatically go that direction. But then I thought, you know, I was just looking around and I thought, well, I'll do my due diligence and I'll look at little actors. And so I looked at, somehow I came across a website that had a bunch of headshots for little performers. And I saw Tanya Banks's headshot and it was probably from the 80s. And it was like my, you know, dream weaver, fantasy headshot it was I mean you could practically see the wind blowing through her hair. and I was like oh my gosh it has to be her who is this woman and it didn't even have her name on the headshot and I said I've got to find her like I, I didn't know I didn't know that it was going to be a black leprechaun I didn't know it was going to be a woman but I saw her picture and I was like how could it be anyone else if I can find this woman it has to be her so then I start kind of you know looking around and and I contact that place. They never got back to me. But I'm kind of digging any little you know, tidbit I can research to find her. Con- I emailed, I don't know, probably six people that may have had contact with this person, somehow found her name. And I discovered online that she performs sometimes as little Tina Turner. And I see her picture, and she's got the Tina Turner wig on. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it has to be her. So I'm just on this mission you know, to find this woman. And we ended up using her own wig in the short. Um, And finally, some of these emails got back to her and she thinks I'm, you know, this crazy woman that she's getting reports from so many people that I'm looking for her. Uh, So she, yeah, she contacted me and was, you know, cool to do it. And she actually wasn't, I mean, she had, she's been acting for years. Like she's a stand-in for Tony Cox a lot um, from Bad Santa. She's been around for years and, you know, doing stuff in, in movies and whatnot, but she hadn't become any sort of name herself. And right before we shot, she was finishing up shooting the first season of Lifetime's Little Women LA, which she's one of the stars of. And it's, you know, a reality show about, um, I think it's six little women, and they've been friends forever. And it's, you know, their life and their relationships and stuff, which has kind of blown up on Lifetime. But when I used her... That was not in existence, okay. so I didn't have to kind of i you know she was nobody to me, but a magical,
0: wonderful picture okay, so let's talk a little bit about you said it was a four day shoot mm-hmm. How big was the production crew
1: so small um, <laughs> really, really small. We had um my d p Roberto Correa, and he had a an assistant camera and focus puller um Jean Duplessis. And that was it for the camera department. And they handled all the lights. There were no grips, nothing like that. They or anyone who was handy pulled the dolly. You know, I mean, there was nobody. And then um, we had makeup and sound switched out. So I shot over two weekends. and So, you know, two days. And then there was maybe even a week off. And then we shot the next, you know, two days the next time. And um, so I had different makeup and uh, sound people each weekend. Then we had a PA who could come when he could. And that was about it. I want to say it, it was really, the producer was kind of being AD plus PA plus everything. And so was I and camera department was doing a ton of stuff. Um, but that was pretty much it on the set.
0: The short film clocks in just right, right around 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, the original script you wrote for this how many pages was it i know the, the old the old saying it's a page a minute i mean did, was this originally intended to be right at the time that the, the, the film is or no. mean, did you how much how much how much did you shoot how long could this short film have been
1: well it's funny because roberto he's uh the dp he's such an artist's artist and he was like kelly you really have to make this 40 minutes and i'm like sure roberto you know i'm sure anyone will watch that you know, so he wanted it to let it breathe, let it breathe and let it be long. But uh, I probably what I wrote initially before making any changes for casting, it was definitely under 10 pages oh. and and then I ended up cutting a few things that I shot and then some things went longer. So it definitely was not the usual. A page a minute.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the actual production costs that are associated with making a short film uh, these days. You had mentioned that there was a four-day shoot and then two <laughs> years of post-production. So right. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the initial budget for the short film, and then maybe you can get into how extended that budget got over the two-year period.
1: I am generally a planner and an eye daughter and a T-crosser, and it's really out of character for me to be involved in a shoot like this, that was so just, I mean, it was like walking through a, you know, dust storm or something. I never knew what was going to develop, how much, how much it was going to change. So many of my plans fell through. And, um, and a lot of that was just because of not having money or help, you know, which money you have to have money to get help. Um, and so I mean, I feel like it was really, really educational because the money that I had initially, I thought I was going to shoot this thing for just no money initially with friends because it did, you know, blow up later. But my initial vision of it, I thought was just going to be a quickie, like a normal internet short. And then, um, then I thought, well, okay, (laughs) $2,000, which was again, silly, And uh, it kept, you know, blowing up and blowing up and it was all coming out of my pocket. I didn't do, um, you know, fundraising or anything for it. And I don't have deep pockets, but it was completely coming out of what do I have at the moment. The money did not go, you know, the places where I ended up spending the most money was not necessarily where you see the value on the screen. It was more, I mean, I would say it was almost the inverse, you know, that the, the most value I paid the least money for.
0: Let me just stop just for a second, because I, I mm-hmm. we, we've been sort of talking about the short film, and, and I haven't even told you yet how much I really enjoyed it. Like it, Oh, good. Thank like, you. Like, we're, 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 we're going over the, the production and the cast and everything, and that's awesome. It's awesome. But I, I want to emphasize that I've seen it three times now. Okay. And... <laughs> I really, really enjoy it. And it's one of those ones where you're, you're absolutely right. You're kind of like, where does this come from? You know, where, right. where, where's the, where does the inspiration come from? We, we've covered that and everything just on a technical level though. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that post-production. If we could, let's talk about, you've got, you've got four days shot. It's in the can. You do the editing, initial editing. What, what takes two years? What?
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you it again, nothing. It It really wasn't one-to-one it, it, made virtually no sense. Um, because I had an editor originally, I, this was so silly. I thought it could be edited in a month. You know, I had this editor lined up and he was going to edit it. You know, I kept confirming this is the deadline because I wanted to get it in for a certain festival and for like a, you know, underground fantasy kind of festival. And he, you know, kept confirming that he would do it. And I don't know what happened, you know, no reason to go into that, but with his schedule and whatnot. Uh, He didn't even start until that date. And I was like, yeah, okay, so I'm going to have to take it back. And so I worked on it for a minute. And um, he had been working in Avid, so I had gone ahead and gotten Avid, the free, or not free, but, you know, the monthly version of it, because I thought, you know, I'll import his files in the same thing, and, you know, so I'm stuck with Avid. So, but then I, so I ended up doing the first cut myself and realized, you know, what a big task it was, and just with all of the special effects, because we hadn't gotten a couple things on set. I'm a big fan of practical effects, and due to time, and whatnot, Um, we shot mostly in my house, but the one, the jail set was a paid for, you know, soundstage. And so we only had a certain amount of time there. And there, what is now that wall of arms that grabs her was supposed to just be a Fright Night face, you know, sort of a big prosthetic mouth that jumps over her shoulder. And we just didn't have time. And so I'm stuck with, you know, a bunch of issues like that, um, that needed to somehow be solved digitally. So we had, We have a friend who runs a trailer editing company and they have every gadget and resource in the world, except it turns out time, (laughs) So, (laughs) like everybody else. So they were like, oh, you know, no problem, you know, and good friends and no problem. We can totally we can handle everything for you. Um, But they just ended up not having time, you know, who it got delegated to, and when they had time to work around their other projects, and they were just swamped. And, and so they had it probably just I left it kind of in their stead, which you do things like this, because it's free for months, I mean, probably seven months. So seven months, it was fairly inactive. You know, there were a couple of cuts, but it it didn't, you would not recognize it. You know, from that, from what I got back from them to what it came, because I was kind of like, eh, I still need to work on it. So I ended up again, like the first editor, just taking it back. And this isn't really a reflection on other people, just money and time, which plus, are plus everything. plus you
0: plus you had a vision, you had a vision yeah. for what you wanted this to look like, and it, it wasn't coming out the way right. you wanted it. Nothing and, against what they did, I understand. Right. Absolutely.
1: And and that was the funniest thing is, you know, the internet would make you think that everybody you know, but you can, I mean, I know that you can feel when you watch it, what kind of the influences are, or even if they weren't direct, what I grew up watching a little bit and what I watched by choice. And, you know, I would give these influences and talk about them. And I was like, okay, so this scene, you know, it's sort of, you know, like Beetlejuice or it's like this or that, you know, everyone kind. And this is all through the line. This is every single person. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I love that. I love that. But then their version of it, I would be like, this is nothing like that. You know, (laughs) how does this look so different um, than what I envisioned? And it just, I found across the board, um, I mean, there were exceptions, but in general, everyone skews toward whatever the modern theatrical trend is. Right. everything skews that way. And to do anything remotely different, I mean, even the slightest bit different. I mean, you have to fight tooth and nail to try to get across. No, I don't want that. You know, I want this. And ultimately, again, if I had had a ton of money, I probably could have gotten that and they could have afforded to spend a lot of time on everything. But I ended up having to do it myself. (laughs) So to get, you know, the look I wanted and to make it make sense.
0: Well, you had final cut, which is, you know, let's, let's be honest. That's a rare thing, you, but you, yeah. you had final cut. Take me, th- and I'm sorry to bring it, come back to the editing thing just for a moment, uh-huh. because I really want for, for a lot of the listeners out there who who probably don't understand just how daunting and yet very important the editing process is,
1: it's you, everything. It, it
0: it it really is. And I know that just from doing this show and believe right. me, this is a a, a a tiny tiny little organization I've got going on right here, my little my little show. It's every. you're absolutely right. It's everything. And
1: if you have the time. If you, you know, have if the time. which I did, which that was actually you know, I had never thought a lot about short films. I had there haven't been a lot that I've loved, you know, in my life of seeing short films and I go to a lot of festivals and things. And uh you know, I think but what I discovered was one of the great things about them is you can take as long as you want. And there you know, you're not going to make any money on it probably. So you might as well make the film you want and it's one of the rare times that a filmmaker can do that. Is you know, as long as you're paying out of pocket and as long as it's just your time, you can do absolutely anything you want. That's pretty much the only reason you should do it. So you just got to keep, you know, pounding at it until you get it where you want.
0: The the production the thing the thing I'm I'm so enamored about this short film is having seen tons of short films is the produ- uh-huh. the production quality on this one is so leaps and bounds above so many other short films that I've seen and it really shows on the screen, it looks like you could have made a feature film here. Like this, like the production yeah. quality was that good here. And mm-hmm. again, going back to the editing process here, just again, because it, it, you, it's eventually something you did on your own. You, you well, eventually- and
1: it, it, it's exactly, I mean, you've nailed it. Because it's not always so much what you had there it's that you cut away everything that looked bad <laughs> you know so then all you got is what looked so duller.
0: any chances you'll ever uh, do an extended cut of this
1: um probably not i mean <laughs> i i actually shot like i was saying that you know it was not one-to-one or anything i actually had the scene in the jail where she's kind of i keep calling it the bugs bunny or the marvin the martian you know where she's kind of getting lost and she keeps coming back in front of the leprechaun Um, that actually was supposed to be sort of a metal-ish music video that was going to be kind of like Labyrinth. So there was a – and that cost me a ton of time in editing because I wanted it to work so badly and I had to just scrap it. But it was her kind of lost in the fog and I had glittery moss on the walls. And, you know, um, our production designer, she made just the most beautiful thing. I had gone to – I mean, Pier One of all places, um, Pier One imports. (laughs) And they had, you know, glittery plants and stuff that looked just like Labyrinth. And I had wanted this anyway. And I was like, oh my gosh, I found it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get my Labyrinth moment. And we, you know, set this thing up for her to be lost in the fog. And uh, I tried cutting that thing every way imaginable. And it just wouldn't work. I mean, honestly, I have tried this film every single way possible. And this, Is the only version that works. Actually, this morning, just for, you know, again, just due diligence. I just don't want to leave anything on the table. I tried, like, okay, let me try to cut just an Internet-length version, you know, because this one is 15 minutes, and the Internet is kind of – it should be two minutes, you know. And it just – I mean, just scrapping – almost everything except the main punchline, you know, set-up punchline. And it doesn't work. Just nothing worked with this version.
0: You're satisfied with the with the product that, that went out, right? I mean, you're...
1: Yeah, no, no. I, I actually really love it. I mean, that's the... I, I think that that's... It, there was a strange thing because it showed at the American Cinematheque in Hollywood at the Egyptian Theater. I was, you know, so stressed and finishing it up and finishing the mix and getting the DCP ready and everything for that. And by the time... Once the DCP was made, all of that kind of went away and I was totally calm. And I sort of realized that insecurity, basically, if you're not confident in what you made or you're not confident, period, then it matters so much what other people think. But once you know you did it, what you set out to do then it doesn't really matter, you know? And so I feel like I did get to there. It just took two years. <laughs> it so, took a long time.
0: What were you doing during those two years? Like, what was your day job? I mean, this was um, something you, were, you said you shot on the weekends, and obviously you had long stretches where this was getting edited and there was tons of post production and special effects that had to be done. What, what were you doing in the meantime?
1: Um, I mean, I do just for day job work. I take some ghost writing jobs. It's all in scripts. It's all in story. And I do um, script reading. Uh, I started out at CAA. And so it, that's how I came through the agency world was in the story department and reading scripts and everything. And I've done that for years. Not just for them, but then I moved on to other places.
0: Let me ask you this real quick, because this mm-hmm. you got me piqued my curiosity here just for a moment. <laughs> so at, at CAA as a script reader, mm-hmm. your job was to just read scripts, and then if you like something, you would kick it up to the next level. Is that kind of how it worked, or?
1: Yeah, I mean that's the that's the myth of script reading okay. that that's what happens. That's how, not how does really it really work. How does, how does it
0: really work? I'd love to know.
1: I mean, and this isn't just CAA. I mean, that was, I started out actually in the story department, working in the office going in every day, um, just kind of running story department affairs. And then I left that Instead of going up the development chain, I went into, I'm going to be a script reader and I'm going to, so that I can work from home and work on my own writing and my own project. But really what happens in this, it's probably agencies are a little different from production companies because agencies don't fund anything. So agencies, it's more in their interest to like everything okay. because if there's a check behind it, if it's funded, because checks will be written. Again, I've worked at several agencies. So, and that's fairly, you know how it works at all of them. Um, Whereas production companies, they don't want you to like anything, because it's all checks, you know, (laughs) that they're writing found in virtually both places that they pretty much know when it comes in the door, whether they want it or they don't, you know, and that as readers job every once in a while, you can, you know, make a difference, but, you know, push something that no one's paying attention to or whatnot. But usually they know when it when it is submitted and when they hand it to you whether they're doing something with it. And I don't feel like readers tend to matter that much at all. I wish we did, but we mm. I don't really think have that much of a say.
0: Did you did you ever was there any examples of of something that you read that, you know, turned out to be the next big thing and, you know, was there ever any drastic changes made to a script that you read and any examples like that?
1: I mean, I don't remember where it was when I read it, but I covered the King speech and I want to say, I want to say Tom Hooper was attached to it maybe, but I didn't know who Tom Hooper was at the time. And um, cause it was, you know, older and I raved about that script. I actually, I liked this. I don't, you know, it's Oscar day, but I didn't, which happens a lot. Once you read something, then you can't see the movie in the same way and I, you know, I saw the movie differently and liked this better, but I raved about that script. And who knows, you know, maybe that made a difference, you know, in it going through the, you know, digestive tract as they call it. You know, because I don't know that it was a super important movie, you know, before it made it through. But again, I'm I'm sure a lot of people raved
0: about it. Give me some type of idea of a, on a percentage basis. Of how many scripts are in Hollywood that get made? Is it less? Is <laughs> it less than one percent? I mean, are there? I yeah, mean, yeah,
1: definitely, definitely. I mean, actually, that was something from being in a story department, and I've been in multiple ones, and they're all a little different. You know how they how they work, but I have been in, and some you go in, some now it's gone all to email, so you don't really see what goes on in there and stuff. But I have seen at you know a stage in my career have seen literal piles when people used to just print I mean I'm not that old but it's changed so fast piles to the ceiling of scripts and underneath like from floor to ceiling and across a whole wall of scripts and of those maybe one out of that stack probably got made into a movie
0: is it, is and, it, it
1: the, and it may have taken 10 years.
0: Is it the old adage that you really have to know somebody or does it, or just someone like yeah. yourself, like a script, <laughs> or like a script reader, like you said, you love the King's speech. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you, like you said, maybe you had something to do with, you know, that, you know, moving up the chain a little bit. Let me ask you this question. Just talking about this is usually the, this is the subject of a lot of conversation I have with, with people. They find it funny that I've been doing a podcast on movies for two and a half years now. <laughs> and uh, in 2015 i went to the movies twice <laughs> which which, which pe- people find that astounding i saw uh-huh. i saw mad max mm-hmm. and i saw the force awakens and those right. were the only two movies that got me motivated to to actually go to the movie theater so mm-hmm. so my question to you is where is the movie theater experience going because it seems to me that it's rinse and repeat rinse and repeat rinse and repeat on on everything it's a, it's it's a sequel it's a remake it's 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 incredibly safe
1: Definitely. Well, and I think that I think it will get better if people ever figure out what's happening right now. I think right now we are. It's kind of like, you know, with stocks when everything got so unsafe and no one knows. So let's do Procter and Gamble. You know, I think. That's kind of where we're at. And and marketing has changed so much because there's so much content. So you have to have to to make a blip, you've got to have twenty million dollars. But to really to have that Star Wars, you know, you have to have upwards of a hundred million dollars in marketing. And nobody has that. And the only thing studios will put it behind are something they know people are already somewhat aware of. And so I think once it shakes out and they figure out and they've done a little more testing as to what they'll come out for. Maybe it will be a little less safe. But right now, it's just, you know, sequels, remakes, reboots.
0: Let's talk about Deadpool for just, just a moment. Have you, <laughs> se- have you seen that movie?
1: Oh, I'm getting a lot of crap because I haven't seen it yet. But no, I haven't. I go to the movies all the time. Okay. I see... I mean, what did I see last week, I saw Zoolander too, and I saw Hail Caesar. I mean, I go, I go a lot. I just haven't gotten to Deadpool yet. The re-
0: the reason I bring up Deadpool is because it's an I- incredibly successful R rated film. Mm-hmm. Now, you can look back over the past forty years and and, and look at the seventies and the eighties, and some of the most popular films from those two decades were R rated films. Mm-hmm. Now, the nineties, we saw, you know, a few in the 2000s and and the teens that we're in now um, R-rated is a very uh, dangerous gamble Mm -hmm. so my question is with with the success of Deadpool Mm -hmm. do you think we're going to see a little bit more push for for more R-rated films or
1: I don't know I mean I I think that the reason they tried it with Deadpool is because superheroes are big. You know, I think um, comedies they are willing to go R-rated sometimes, and Deadpool was both. So I think it kind of hit on two things where that became safe to go R-rated. And I'm sure there will be some stabs at it, you know, but I don't know. (laughs) I I think right now, again, with that theatrical experience, I think most people who go are parents with kids. And I don't I think people will, will do like, okay, this is our R rated test for the year. But I don't know until it proves itself a few times if they'll really commit to it. You know, it's like they did with Bridesmaid. Okay, let's do some raunchy female stuff. You know, and everyone had to have their raunchy female one, you know, uh, to see if it would always work. And nothing always works.
0: That's interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. Can we can we go back to the nineteen eighties just for a moment? Yeah. Okay, so I wanna ask you anytime. I wanna ask you a question here. Okay. Is Die Hard the greatest action film ever made? (laughs) There's no wrong answer here.
1: Uh, You know, I don't know. It's always so hard to say best or whatever. I love it. I was thinking about having a Die Hard themed wedding on the top of the Nakatomi (laughs) Plaza. Um, So I'm a big fan. I don't know. You know, I definitely think it. Became a huge model for them.
0: Sure. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I
1: don't, you know, I don't know that it's the best, I, maybe the most that there's a consensus on.
0: It, it, I think
1: everyone likes Die Hard. I mean, who doesn't like Die Hard? But
0: you'll agree that it, it completely changed the game because, uh, oh, yeah. Pre, pre Die Hard, it was uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone never running out mm-hmm. of ammo, never getting hurt right and and die hard completely changed the game i didn't realize I, i'm sorry go ahead i
1: wish it changed it a little bit more in a way like you know i i like statham again i watch everything I, I watch every genre um but i liked and bruce bruce like we now think of as an action you know hero but at the time i mean moon like i loved him as moonlighting i loved the return of bruno you know he wasn't an action hero guy and i kind of would like to see more you know I'd like to see Paul Rudd in an action movie. You know, I'd like to see someone who's not, like, you know, super beefy.
0: Oh well, let's not I for- mean, I
1: guess he is now.
0: Let's not forget Paul Rudd turned out an amazing performance in Halloween 6, The Origin of Michael Myers.
1: Oh, never forget. <laughs> never forget. Hashtag never, never forget.
0: <laughs> so, uh, okay, let me just – one more question about Die Hard, then we'll move on there. So uh, you, you mentioned you, you, you want to have a Die Hard-themed wedding. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. So that means you're you're at least a, a huge fan of the series. I'll, yes. I'll, I'll concede that you're not prepared to call it the, the best action film of all time, as well, I call it.
1: I'm always cautious of what everyone else is going to think and why. And, you know, I know my tastes are not everyone else's, but I do love it. And I talk about the series all the time and the sequels versus the original well, and that's, whatnot. That's
0: what I wanted to bring up for a moment. Now, I am, uh, a, I did a, I, I did a ser- I did an episode on the Die Hard. I call it the Die Hard trilogy because I only acknowledge three of the films. <laughs> right. There was a 12-year gap between Die Hard with a Vengeance and then uh, uh, Live Free or Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me your initial thoughts when you saw that the fourth Die Hard film was rated PG-13 before you even saw the film. <laughs>
1: You know, well, I'll tell you something about me right now, which is a conversation in my house all the time is ratings do not occur to me. I'm never aware until I have a conversation with someone bringing it up. I'm like, oh, you know, it, it never occurs to me what something's rated because I didn't I wasn't a kid whose parents paid attention to it you know, it was never a topic. And every now in school, and now and then in school, I'd be like, let's go see this. And they'd be like, it's rated, you know, whatever we weren't allowed to see. And I would be like, Oh, right. You know, <laughs> I forgot that people care. Because I was an only child. So I went to see whatever my parents saw. And I was mature. And you know, they just let me see whatever, you know, went to see aliens in the theater. And, <laughs> and I would have been five, you know, awesome. I, I, so I, you know, and, and I would just if I get scared, I would turn around and they would be like, you know, take care of yourself. If you don't want nightmares, you better turn around. So, you know, I was, it was, I was, uh, you know, making those decisions for myself—what I could handle and what I couldn't—and I couldn't handle it. Like, I never saw Nightmare on Elm Street or anything until I, I decided I was ready at thirteen to go in, and I watched the whole series in a weekend of Nightmare on Elm Street. But yeah, so that that kind of thing never—it might be something that would come up after I saw the movie, like, why was that one not? The same, you know, and then I'll be like, Oh, maybe that's part of it. But yeah, it never ratings as a preliminary thing that I notice, it it's just it doesn't happen. I never know what something's rated.
0: No, that's really good. Okay, so that being said, what did you think of the uh, Live Free or Die Hard? And then you can give me some uh, brief comments on a Good Day to Die Hard.
1: Now, this is the one. <laughs> live Free or Die Hard is the one 007 from Plainfield, New Jersey, right? The, that's the one. The, the last one. Uh,
0: well, uh, no, li- li- live. No, <laughs> live. Li- for li- live Free Long. or Die Hard is the one that uh, about computer hacking with and Kevin that's Smith the has a cameo. Long yeah, and yeah.
1: Mary Elizabeth Winston. Okay, um, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm okay with it, you know, but it's not the same. Here's the main problem with Die Hard, or the main issue. It was a contained action movie, which everyone wants contained now. They want Die Hard all the time. Yeah. But once he's not trapped in a building, like, what's the concept? <laughs> so it's how is it Die Hard really anymore? Well, it's became... John McClane, but it's not, you know, contained or anything. So all of that suspense kind of goes out the window
0: i thought i felt like he became a caricature of those 1980s action films that die hard worked so hard to you know distance yeah. itself from in in the last two die hard films and that's why i though i, I thought live for your die hard was you know on a visual level i thought it looked pretty good um, it was entertaining it was enough entertaining.
1: if you don't connect it to die hard you know
0: exactly that's perfect no that's perfect
1: If it's just a – you know, if I just saw a movie with Bruce Willis and, you know, Justin Long, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I'm like, oh, you know, that's kind of cool. And I like the idea of it's the kids grown up and stuff. But I don't know. It's just not the same thing to me. I mean, I – Bruce Willis used to be my guy. And I used to practice his smirk all the time, (laughs) you know, like me and my friend would kind of do, you know, warring Bruce Willis smirks and compete. And uh, I think that at a certain point he kind of lost his smirk a little bit. And I think that that's sort of the diehard, that's the arc of diehard is him losing his smirk a little bit, (laughs) you know, it just became less about a real guy that you related to.
0: That's exactly, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, you nailed it. You, you, that's. The- I
1: mean, and I, don't get me wrong, I love Arnold, and Arnold is not a uh, normal guy. You know, he's not a normal guy you relate to. So it doesn't have to be that, but that was Die Hard's thing. That was kind of what made it different.
0: So let me ask you this, Die Hard Wedding, who, um, <laughs> who, who, who's Hans Gruber at the wedding? Is that the person who marries you? I mean, I'm trying to think, who, who plays that role?
1: Yeah, I don't think we got that far. Okay. We've, we've met Robert Davi a couple times. We've gone to see him sing and um you know had romantic dates to hear Robert Davi sing Sinatra and whatnot So that's all, that's as far as we got pretty much was Nakatomi Plaza and Robert Davi and maybe a Reginald Vell Johnson. But I think, (laughs) and then we were like, we can't afford that.
0: Okay. So let me ask you this about the Fox Tower. So that's still a recognizable landmark for anyone who's been to Los Angeles. Uh, Truth be told, I've never been to Los Angeles. So uh, that's in Century City. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? Okay. Yeah. Um,
1: And you can see it. I mean, if you've seen Die Hard a lot, I didn't know that it was here and I saw it by sight. You know, Which I wouldn't have thought that I could describe the Nakatomi Plaza to you until I saw it, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's the Nakatomi Plaza.
0: That was fun, by the way. Thank you for talking Die Hard with me. <laughs> I, I love talking Die Hard. I, I almost brought up Nightmare on Elm Street, but I don't think we're going to have enough time to to get oh, in. i no problem. I'd love, to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Nightmare on Elm Street, because um, – I was one of those people who my sister, uh, God bless her, she's a couple years older than me, thought it would be okay to show this movie to me in 85 uh, on yeah. VHS when I was seven years old. If you listen, go back and listen to my episode called The History of Elm Street. I tell a very traumatic uh-huh. tale about how uh, how that movie affected me and still affects me to this day. So th- I'll have you back on the show sometime to discuss Elm Street. That would yeah. be awesome. No,
1: I, ha- I had a similar flipping through channels experience with Elm Street before I ever sat down and actually watched it. I, I was scarred for a number of years before I knew what I had seen.
0: Oh, absolutely. No, I was right there with you. And let's go back. We could go mm-hmm. back to the long, long hour of the leprechaun. Bring me up to, you had its premiere at mm-hmm. the Egyptian theater. Uh-huh. Okay. Bring me up to the scramble to get the film finished. And what was going like the, 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 weeks leading up to that one. Cause that's, tell me about that experience. And what was that like? Well,
1: you know, it was kind of funny because, uh, <laughs> you think you're done, you know, <laughs> I thought I was done And I thought, oh, you know, we're done. The cut's locked. And then, um, you know, the music's locked and everything. And so we went in and did the mix. And our mixers, for what you know, that's on the movie. You find people that you love, like, definitely, I will never use anyone other than them. And people that's like, no. Um, And the mixers were amazing. And they did Starry Eyes, which I loved the sound design in that, which wasn't how we found them. That was just, oh, you did Starry Eyes. But um, they were so, so, so good. And so we had gone in and done the regular stereo mix of that after finishing the score, which the score, that was, I guess, we left my folks' house in Florida uh, with the composer turning in his music, which that's another instance of just not having enough money because you can't ask people to work forever, you know, for a flat rate. So... I ended up having to supplement the score myself and make the, like I kept a lot of his music, but then, you know, maybe even half, I don't know. Uh, I ended up changing myself or coming up with new cues myself. And so that probably got settled in a month or so. I I got that maybe a month and a half. And as soon as that was done, we had this wild scramble to find sound mixers for the post sound. And that was so hard because uh, no one wants to do sound stuff for just the love of it. (laughs) um, Like, I love your project. I'll take it on. That's not why anyone's doing post sound. So that was really hard finding all of, you know, the people and we had had really rough production sound because we were shooting on streets with cars whizzing by and things. So, it you know, some of that needed cleaned up and whatnot. So we got the mix done, the stereo mix. And then as soon as that was done, we thought, well, let's send it to a couple of people. And so we sent it to the Cinematech because we know some people over there. And, you know, they, have, they will take shorts now and then and might program it in some series. And probably an hour after we sent it, we heard back like, yeah, you know, we're having this screening <laughs> of The Sinful Dwarf, which is this Danish... I've read that it's some places from 1974, some from 1976. So I don't know the actual year, but, uh, anyway, they were having that as part of the cinematic void kind of underground Mondo series. And they were like, well, it's going to be a knife or a night of uh dwarf movies and little people in films and stuff. And so it got programmed as part of that, uh, as part of that. And that was a week away. So then we had to go make a DCP, get the, you know, surround sound done. And I mean, it was right up to the last second, getting all of that, that done and fixing like a blown out pixel in the film. And it, it was it's amazing how many things come up as your final, you're finally you're going to say, I'm not going to touch this anymore.
0: So you get it you get it done at the very last minute. The, you know, the, the final hour. Yeah. It's done.
1: It, it had been programmed essentially before it was really done, 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 done.
0: Okay. So you you're you've got your premiere coming up. You've got Mm -hmm. the premiere cast and crew is all there. Everyone's attending.
1: Um, Well, not really because it, I mean, the, the majority of the cast was there, but it was Valentine's Day weekend and no notice. So a lot of people already had their plans. James Hong couldn't be there because he was in a parade. (laughs) (laughs) It it was the um, Chinese Lunar New Year. And they were having a Chinatown parade that he had already been booked in advance to be on, like, the Kung Fu Panda float. So, you know, he couldn't be there. But it was it was actually really interesting as a premiere because I feel like it was such a strange movie to be paired with. So, you know, I go to these kind of series all the time and I'm always finding, you know, I like the Mondo Macabro label and I'm always finding strange, you know films to watch but a lot of people on the crew are just a lot of people who want to make movies period actors you know crew people they're pretty much aware of what's out there in front of everyone they're not doing a ton of digging you know and I thought oh gosh you know they're gonna see this crazy movie you know that we're paired with so maybe it was best that they the ones who couldn't make it okay you know didn't make it <laughs> that they didn't have to see the sinful dwarf
0: so let's talk about its' It's on YouTube, and everyone mm-hmm. that's listening to this episode I'm assuming they've they've watched it because like i said i've at the beginning of the episode i've I've included a link on the show notes so if you uh-huh. if if for those who are listening if you haven't watched it i'm I'm not sure how this conversation has gone for you so <laughs> I, just, I just want to make sure that everybody's watched it what I found interesting when i was I've been sort of charting the the success of the uh, mm-hmm. of the video on youtube and, uh-huh. and I'm sure you have been as well uh-huh. and it's interesting that a short film inspired by a viral video right. is very close to going viral at this point. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at the number of views that this, thing, that this short film has, and uh-huh. you, you've got to be happy with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, because I'm not – I don't know if it's you know – I'm not young enough. I mean, I, I act like I'm so old. I'm not that old. But uh, I don't know what that means you know, like how many numbers you have to have or anything like that. So I don't really know what it takes, you know, or how close anything is to what I mean, I'm glad that people are watching it. And everyone who's watched it, either loves it, and is, you know, kind of semi traumatized by like, what? How? You know, how did this happen? What is it? You know, how could you ever I thought I knew you? (laughs) Um, That's a big one. Um, (laughs) Or they're just, you know, stunned, silent. So I think that those are good responses. I uh, but <laughs> that's all I can that's all I can go off of really is if somebody's in front of me and I'm kind of reading their eyeballs, like what did you really think? You know, that's all I can really take to heart, I guess.
0: Well I'll give you my, my honest first reaction when I saw it because I did I didn't know I purposely didn't want to know anything about it. That's I, I knew that it was inspired by the um the the, the video from from Alabama. Mm-hmm. I'm delighted to hear that that's all based on the the experiences you had with the shirt and all that stuff. That all really happened like that. Yeah. I'm actually actually anxious to watch it again now, putting it in that context. Like you actually Mm -hmm. went through these situations.
1: Yeah. Up until the supernatural part. But but, really, honest to God, I did do the Better Business Bureau thing and it did say it was coming from a correctional facility that happened and at that point i dropped my investigation and i was like you know what this is inspiration for something but i'm not going to be digging any further um if this is actually coming from a jail i'm done
0: what i thought i mean i'm watching the the short film and i I think to myself okay again not knowing anything about it i -hmm. assumed that this had a supernatural element to it right but the first you know few minutes of it i said to myself oh well, this doesn't have anything to do with Supernatural. This is about uh, a, a young woman's quest to, to find out where the hell this T-shirt went. And, right. I, and I, I, was like, I was like, well, this is fun. This is kind of fun. You know, this is interesting. Right. And then it just goes completely in the direction that I uh, initially thought it was going to go, then was settled into the fact that it wasn't going to go there. And then it went there. And then it really went there. Yeah. And And that's what well, I loved about it.
1: You're more, I guess, in my camp because I kept saying as I was, you know, working on it in post really i was like is this too obvious is everyone gonna guess this and you know jim hempel the producer was like you've got to be crazy (laughs) i was like is this too bland and he's like are you nuts you know this is not bland but yeah because i thought well sure everyone's gonna assume it's you know a leprechaun but they do not
0: no and I, i can tell you i can tell you that from an honest first viewing i thought before i watched it supernatural settled into the into the into the short film i was like oh okay not supernatural and then like i said it went it went awesome like it's, it's just-
1: yeah well you know it was funny that was the part that i was the most worried about because with this kind of thing i didn't know i mean my taste as we've already discussed it's you know, Die Hard Aliens, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, and, I mean, everywhere in between. Like, the star filters at the end, that was from, like, I had always wanted to use that uh, ever since I saw it in Veronica Voss. And in The Temple of Doom in the beginning, they have those star filters yeah. on some of the dancers, and it's in uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. You know, so I always wanted to use that. But I'm coming from all these different places, and the first half is really romantic comedy. And I kind of thought... You know, are any of the audiences going to line up for this? I mean, it's all me, it's 100% me, what I would like to see, but you know, will they get it? And the funny thing was at that cinematic void screening where it is people who just like the extreme, and I got more of a reaction out of the rom com oh, than the crazy because I think they're more used to the crazy and they probably would never choose to be in a rom com situation. It was so a- that that played newer and more exciting to them but
0: the rom-com the rom-com aspect of it was charming though like it was yeah they
1: they really reacted to it and i was very concerned about that i thought gosh you know are people going to bear with it until it kicks in and it played great at least in a theater
0: well what was it like to see it was that the first time you saw it on the big big screen Do you see it play on on a screen that big
1: um well i saw it twice on a big screen, because just testing the sure. DCP. Sure. We tested it at the facility where they made the DCP. And then we tested it at the Egyptian just to make sure everything went right, you know, with the transfer, and it wasn't encoded or anything like that. So I had seen it. So the only thing that was new to me about seeing it that night was people I don't know, seeing it, you know, seeing the reactions, because otherwise, it had been people That knew me, you know, I mean, and even then people who knew me, I don't think they really knew me (laughs) until they saw the short, you know, and, you know, there were sort of like there were a lot of people were fairly, you know, stunned, you know, that I I am who I am
0: when I and I'm I'm, 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 there. There's a question here. I want to ask you because I've been doing this show for a little over two years. And I when I when I produce an episode. And I put it online on iTunes or wherever I put it up there. It goes out Mm -hmm. to the whole world. Right. Okay. Right away. Instantly out to the whole world. And I I get uh, statistics and metrics and shows me that this this show is downloaded all over the world and where it's Uh downloaded. And I'm completely fine with all of that. Mm -hmm. But I run into somebody here in the town I live in Mm -hmm. and I'm a little apprehensive to give him one of my business cards.
1: Yeah, because because
0: it's like, hi, here, here's the show. And by the way, um, uh, if you're offended by bad language, don't listen to this episode. And don't listen to the Pulp Fiction episode or anything. And I, I'm more, in, I found myself to be more like worried about what people I know, think about right. the work I do. So what were your emotions in that screening when you like you said, you were you were sitting with you were fine with the people that didn't know you. You were happy with their reactions. Yeah.
1: It, well, you know what was funny is I, it was actually a strange experience because it's an interesting point. It was, you know, it preceded a feature. So, and there was no break or anything. It just there, boom, applause, feature. So I didn't get to talk to anybody until after the feature. So I, you know, it's like, I wouldn't even say pins and needles. I was just going into like shut off emotions. You know, <laughs> I, you know, I can't think about it. I'm just going to watch this, uh, you know, crazy movie uh, for two hours. So I didn't get anybody that I knew's reactions until two hours later. And uh, I initially thought that everyone hated it. This It was like a big conversation that night that I thought everyone was acting like, kind of protective of me and oh no Kelly just embarrassed herself and all of this (laughs) and you know because I could not read it at all because some of them understandably could not finish the feature they had to leave and go get drinks (laughs) it's a pretty intense feature and um so they had all been talking for some time and turned out by the end of the night anyway that everyone loved it and, you know, we're just like, and they thought they were reading in me like, oh, no, she's not happy with it. We thought it was so great. And so it it was this weird back and forth of them thinking I didn't like it and me thinking they didn't like it. And it, we all loved it. But it was it was very tense for a second because it was people I knew. And I'm like, they're being polite. They're not they don't want to <laughs> tell me. And, yeah, actually, it it just took a couple hours before everyone kind of opened up and let their guard down. And and everyone, you know. Everyone was so surprised by how well it came out because I had been working on it for so long. And I think when people do work on something for a long time, you tend to think, oh, no, it must be a disaster.
0: Right.
1: And so they were, I think, it it was a strange night, definitely, because they know me, they talk to me and stuff, but they hadn't seen... And even some of them had read some of my scripts, but nothing I've done has been as me as this was. And so... It, there was definitely a change in their perception okay. of me after that night, you know, and of the movie because they didn't know if it was a real thing or whether they should get excited about it. And then that night did change a lot of things and made everyone very excited.
0: That's awesome. All right, so Kelly, be- before we before we close out the conversation today, I have I have two questions for you. The first one is, what's next for you?
1: Well, right now, that's the funny thing that happens. You, ca- I think, you have to. After you make anything, even if I write a script, you have to think it's totally going to change your life. (laughs) And then it inevitably does not. But uh, you have to think that. So then there's like this depression of, oh, no, now I have to do something new. You know, it's the what to do next is not just going to appear before me. Um, So basically, I have a lot of scripts that I'm kind of midway writing all at once to see which one will be the feature. That I do, but it's going to be a feature, and it'll be a thriller or horror feature.
0: That's awesome. That's that's outstanding. So, uh, and don't forget the show. You know when? when <laughs> yeah, when no, these, <laughs> of
1: course. Because
0: I want I want to make sure you come back on the show one when, when, You know because you know it's just going to keep going up. I know this.
1: Yeah. So oh, I hope so.
0: So uh, the final question I have for you is, what advice would you offer to somebody who's listening right now? Who is, let's just say they're in their early 20s, mm-hmm. they, they want to become a filmmaker, they want to become a scriptwriter, they want to do something in the creative process. And what advice would you give to somebody who has who, never done anything, but they, they want to do something?
1: You know, it's hard because I've wanted to do this since, well, since I knew it was a job. And I've been, movies have been my number one thing, right? ahead of books, you know, for since I was like two years old. And yet it has taken me so long to figure out how it works, what's right for me. And I think that the main, huge, important thing is finding yourself and finding your voice. And I wish I could say that there's a fast way to do that. I think you just have to be doing stuff all the time and just trying different things, seeing what works, seeing what makes you the happiest and what comes the most naturally, it makes you feel the best about accomplishing it. Because I mean, gosh, it took me a long time to kind of figure out and to let go and to be actually me versus mimicking people. I mean, I guess, you know, this movie has some influences, but it's still, it's not one of them just recited, you know. And so I think that that's, I, you just basically have to not be afraid to try stuff, which can be really scary, especially if you think very highly of the things that inspired you. You don't want to kind of, bomb out and just make a terrible thing yourself but you kind of have to you kind of just have to make some terrible stuff
0: and I've always said that it's 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 okay to if right out of the gate you know the things that you create and and I'm just talking from personal experiences with with this show it's okay if right out of the gate the the, you know the first five episodes of your podcast are terrible Mm -hmm. because they're all learning experiences and you learn the more you do something the the better at it you get that's what I've learned yeah
1: I really think that's The only way I used to think you could try to do it and do it in a way where you didn't get hurt and weren't risking anything and you cannot, you just have to, you know, keep taking stabs at it and figure it out. And I think that the most important thing is that person who's that age, who's, you know, in their early twenties, that was when I came out here and I was so exuberant and I would get into the right situations, you know, with people who could probably do something for me, but I had no skill. You know, like that exuberance is so infectious and it will get you everywhere, but not if you don't have the skill. But I think sometimes the time it takes you to develop the skill, you can really become jaded and lose the exuberance. So trying to, you know, manage your life in a way that you can keep the exuberance while increasing your skill is probably the biggest challenge.
0: That's well said. Very well said. Can people follow you on Twitter if they want to keep up with what you're doing?
1: They can. I'm, I'm not super great about it, but <laughs> I'm on there a lot right now. At nilblogget, like the troll to that, nilblog.
0: That's awesome. And there'll be a link in the show notes uh, where people can, can follow you on Twitter. So, Kelly, I, I want to thank you so, so much for taking some time out of your day because I saw this short film. And I had to get to the bottom of it. I had oh, to know what so it was much. all about. And and thank you so, so much. And I, I want to officially invite you to come back on the show anytime you'd like. Anytime. Oh,
1: thank you so much. I will definitely be back whenever per- you'll have me.
0: Perfect, perfect. So, so thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk soon, okay?
1: Okay, sounds great. Thank you. Thank
0: you.